Thank you, Sally. We are very blessed to have you here to share your musical gifts with us. So thank you so much for that. I want to invite you to pray with me, and I'm trusting that you did have a chance to find your Bibles, and we'll be there in just a second. But pray with me. Lord, we do come to you in this moment. We come to you with our scriptures in hand and asking that you would speak to us clearly that we might be able to navigate these days and honor Jesus in the midst of them. We pray in his name. Amen. There are moments like these when I, uh, we have to make a decision. Do we kind of continue on with the preaching series we've been going through? We've been doing the Gospel of Mark for a couple, three weeks or maybe years now. And uh, we could easily have continued on with that. But sometimes something happens and you just have to kind of put a stop to what you have been doing and adjust a little bit. And so we're going to adjust a little bit this morning because, of course, we all know that the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus and COVID-19 are uh, occupying most of our attention most of the time. And so in the middle of this episode, this epidemic, this pandemic, as we face this moment of difficulty, we have to ask ourselves the question, really, what's up with that? You know, and I can remember in my own faith experience, in my faith journey, uh, when I first came to become a Christian under the, the mentorship and leadership of a friend in the Air Force named Harry, I, uh, I had like this heavenly high for about a week. I mean, I was literally floating a couple, three feet off the ground. And then suddenly, things started to happen. And the things that started to happen were, in that day and time, really just part and parcel of everyday living, right? The normal inconveniences and the normal uh, disturbances that we have. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, what's the deal here? I believe in Jesus now. Isn't everything supposed to be wonderfully simple from here on out? Well, I found out then and, uh, and I remember today that that's just not the case. My faith mentor, that gentleman Harry that I had mentioned to you, he taught me along the way. We had hours and hours and hours in, the, in a truck together going to inspect missile sites in, in Wyoming and in northern Colorado, western Nebraska. He taught me during that time to, to, re, to be a person of reflex as a Christian. And part of that reflex is the reflex to go to the scriptures uh, to try to navigate life. And so... As I began to unpack what was happening in my life that, again, was not certainly a pandemic, but, you know, the normal life experiences, I did do what he had told me to do, which was go to the scriptures. And I, and I hear, heard things like Jesus in the Beatitudes saying that we will suffer as Christians. We're going to suffer. Um, and uh, later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Well, thanks a lot, Jesus. That's not exactly what I thought was going to happen when I became a believer. But nonetheless, there it is. In this world, you will have trouble. And you don't have to go very far in the book of Acts to see the reality of the, of the, of the occurrence of trouble and difficulty in the lives of people who were believers in Jesus. In the book of Amos, in the Old Testament, Amos is one of the minor prophets. We don't call him minor because he's lesser. We call him minor because he wrote a shorter piece in chapter 7, verse 14, he describes himself. He says, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Well, this morning, I, me, Pastor Howard, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of the prophet. But I can guarantee you that in the days ahead, things are going to get more complex and not less complex. So the question is, what do we do when we face difficulties as Christians? How do we navigate those things? How do we respond to those things? We're going to be really in two places this morning. The primary place we're going to land is in the book of James chapter 1. So if you're going to open your Bibles, that would be the place I would encourage you to go and park your 
marker or your finger or your thumb or whatever it is you're going to use to mark your place in the scriptures. But I want us to remember something important about the reality of the world in which we live. And that thing that's important about the reality of the world in which we live is that it is broken. It is not the way it's supposed to be. An author named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. wrote a book a few years ago. He entitled the book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And the subtitle was A Breviary of Sin. And here's the thing. God created this magnificent universe in which we live, and he created us. He fashioned you as his perfectly loved, special child. But the world is broken. Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, when they took the bite of the fruit from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, they not only imposed personal sin on themselves and passed a sin nature to the rest of us, they broke the planet. They broke the universe. And so sometimes I think, at least in my mind, I know I have this expectation that everything's going to be okay, everything's all right. But look around. Hey, man, I live in Kansas. Tornadoes? Hail? What the hell? I mean, the first week we were here, we had the car parked at the mall, and this hailstorm, this hellacious hailstorm broke out and smashed the car to pieces. The world's broken. Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes. I don't know why we are surprised when these things come, but we seem to be surprised. So the first piece of this I want us to get a hold of this morning is that the truth is the world is broken. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, he says this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For, verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Do you hear what he's saying? The whole universe is waiting for this moment that the theologians call the consummation when everything is put back together, recreated the way it's supposed to be. So I don't think as Christians we should be all that puzzled when things happen. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be dour, sourpussed. Oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end, people. But the truth is that Jesus is going to bring this world to an end and he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. That's the language of the book of Revelation. So with all that in mind about the general state of affairs, I want to encourage us this morning to spend some time in the book of James as we think about how as Christians we are to respond to trials. He gives us a strategy, James does, in his little book. So if you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 12. James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. 
But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. And jumping down to verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James gives us some stuff to hang on to in the middle of this pandemic. And he gives us stuff to hang on to no matter what comes our way in terms of trials. But I have to be honest with you. When I read first, the first time I ever read read verse 2, when James says, consider it pure joy whenever you encounter trials of many kinds, I thought, oh my gosh, this guy James, he was smoking whatever was popular to smoke back in that day. Because I got to tell you, my first response is not usually pure joy when I encounter trials. But... Nonetheless, the New American Standard Bible says all joy. It it, it is attitude, listen, it's attitude that can make the difference in trials. There is biblically a twofold aspect to joy. We make decisions to embrace things joyfully, and the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So this, this combination, and here, James, is emphasizing the decisions that you and I make. The Jesus, Jesus in the Beatitudes talks about being blessed. This is not a false happiness, but it's a recognition of the reality that he has overcome all the circumstances that we're going to encounter. It's also, when we choose joy, it's our recognition that though it may look bleak on any given day, God is really God. He really is powerful. This joy that the Bible talks about is not a fake smile. It's optimism optimism of the heart. We count it joy. You and I, we count it joy when we escape trials. At least that's how I live my life usually. I can remember I had my orientation ride in an Air Force jet bomber. It was an FB-111. And uh, the guy who was the instructor pilot, his name was Sandy. He happened to be from Massachusetts. And we got in, and in the FB-111, the pilot and the weapon system operator, or in this case, the passenger who's trying to figure out what's going on, they sit side by side. Not tandem like in some airplanes, but side by side. And so we get strapped in, in our G-suits and our helmets, we're strapped in. Right between us, there are two handles with yellow and black tape on them. Sandy looks over at me and he says, if you don't remember anything else I say to you today, he said, do not touch that yellow and black handle, unless you hear me say the words, bail out, bail out, bail out. Well, because it was the ejection seat handle. And if you pulled that thing, man, you were going for a ride you had not planned on. Well, when we hit trials, most of the time, I think we're looking for the ejection seat handle because we just want out. But the truth from the scriptures is Most of the time, for Christians, the way is not out, the way is through. Pastor Lord read to us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not yea, though I walk the alternative route that takes me around the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. No, I walk through it. And this, I've got to tell you, was a shocker to the first century Jewish audience that heard these words from James for the first time. Because they had been enculturated to believe that if you were a good boy or a girl and you did all your chores and you did all the things that the the religious law expected of you, if you were a good boy and girl, 
then things were supposed to go well for you. I don't know if you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament. It's a real uplifting journey most of the time when you read it. But if you look at that book of Job, Job's friends show up after all that calamity has befallen Job. They all, his friends show up. And one by one by one, in their own special you know, way, they say to Job, man, you must have screwed up somehow, buddy. You must have done something wrong for all this calamity to befall you. But that wasn't the case. And later on, Job himself gets to the place where he says, though he, he's talking about God, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I can tell you, quite frankly, I'm not usually hanging out in the place where I'm saying regularly, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. But that is the aspiration. That's the place of attitude for the Christian. Listen, faith is not hazard insurance. Faith in Jesus is life assurance. And those are two completely different things. So according to James, trials are not punishment, but an opportunity for joy. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite authors, said, that he, said this. He said he was convinced that our experience of what happens to us is 10% the actual thing and 90% our attitude toward the thing. I think he's onto something. You may quibble about the percentages, but I do believe he's onto something. So we make this decision about joy. What else does James say from our passage this morning about the rationale for trials and, and what's going on here and how we kind of should respond to it. Well, in verses 3 and 4, he has this trail that he develops, this kind of this little verbal trail he develops, and he says perseverance through trials leads to maturity, and maturity leads to completion. Yesterday, we got uh, delivered by the FedEx driver, who incidentally had shown up earlier on here at the church because she needed a lunch and we had to happen to have lunch for our uh, community meal. She had forgotten her debit card and so we gave her uh, a lunch and we're happy to do that. And then later on she shows up at my house to deliver these boxes. I said, gosh, if I'd known you were coming, I'd have just taken the boxes then. But the boxes contained two pieces of furniture with three words on them that I really, really, really do not like. Some assembly required. Now, I had purposefully shopped for these two little file cabinets because the assembly that was required was the minimal amount of assembly. I didn't want the giant cabinet to come in a flat box. Whenever you order furniture and it comes in a flat box, you've made a mistake. So, but the thing is, you and I in our faith life, as we are growing in Jesus, there is some assembly required. There's some maturity that's going on. Your life and my life is kind of like a paint-by-number picture. You've seen those, right? Back in the olden days, now it's paint-by-iPad picture, but whatever. Little colors, little numbers all over the picture for, that represented different colors, the ones and the threes and the sevens and whatever. Well, and so all of those colors, they represent a specific, those numbers represent a specific color. So the number three is red, and you go to all the places, and you color in all the red. And the number two is yellow, and you go to all the places, and you color in the number two. You and I, we are God's paint-by-number picture. And he uses difficulties to help fill in our character and mature us and grow us. Because honestly, the question we ask when trials come our way is not why, but why me? 
Lord, I have several other candidates I can nominate for you to experience these trials. Thank you very much. That's the wrong question, really. The question is not so much why. The question is what. God, what would you have me learn in this? What would you have me discern in this? And so we ask him, verse 5 in the book of James, chapter 1 that we just read, verse 5 says we ask God for wisdom. And that wisdom begins to unfold. And the realization comes to us in the middle of asking the question that God is still with us. The promise of Christmas isn't just for December 25th. Emmanuel, God with us, that's an eternal promise. And in verse 5, he is waiting to give us wisdom. In fact, the Bible there says he, he gives it to us generously. In the original language of the New Testament, this word means open-handedly. Like, here it is. I have it. Take it. And he's not one of those people who um, says something to us, and then when we finally figure it out, he says, see, I told you so. That's not God. God is here generously. He reminds me of an... His generosity reminds me of an all-you-can-eat buffet. My trouble with all-you-can-eat buffets is I go and I eat all several people can eat. Fortunately for me right now, uh, the buffets are all closed, so that's too bad. But God is generous. He provides all the wisdom we could ever, ever need. But there's a caveat here. Did you see it in verse 6? The caveat is that we should believe. Because in verse 7, if we don't believe that God will bestow this wisdom, we won't even recognize the answer if we see it. In verse 8, the description of the person who uh, waffles in their belief is double-minded. Literally, again, in the original language of the New Testament, this means two-souled. Ryrie, in his study Bible, calls this divided allegiance. Father Abraham, uh, Paul alludes to, the Apostle Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, and he describes Abraham this way. You remember the story of Abraham, right? And Sarah, they couldn't have kids until they were way past the age when you should have kids running around the house because they're going to drive you crazy when you're 90. But anyway, Abraham, Romans chapter 4, verse 20, fully persuaded that God was able to do what he said. James says here we should ask and believe that God is going to pour out his wisdom for us to understand and to endure and to just hang on to him in the middle of difficult times. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not perfectly, you know, accomplished in this area of unwavering belief. That's why I love the story in the Gospel of Mark. You knew I'd get Mark in here somehow this morning, right? In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 20 through 24, there's the account of the dad who brings his kid to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can, will you heal my boy? And Jesus says, if I can? Don't you believe me? Don't you believe that I can? And the dad says this, and I love this. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you see the generosity of God here? James says, come to him believing with this reminder in the back of our heads that this unbelief, even that, 
God is willing to meet. Because though faith is the issue in verses 5 through 8 here in James, it's not how much faith we have, but in whom we place our faith. That's the difference. And so knowing that we're not in it alone and knowing that this God of generosity pours out wisdom to us if we should need it, we recognize that results will come. And those are unpacked for us in verse 12. Blessedness. Again, blessedness does not just equal happiness because happiness is a function of happenings or circumstances. And our happiness, at least mine, often revolves around uh, how smooth my life is going and whether I've been inconvenienced or not. And, and you know, when the smoke detector and the carbon monoxide director, direct detector go off at the same time, that's annoying and I'm not happy. Or when baseball is postponed. Now they're not going to start the season till May, they think. Although with this year, with the Red Sox having traded Mookie Betts away, maybe that's not such a bad thing after all. Blessedness is not happiness. Blessedness is a sense of ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy. Now, what does that look like? In the book of Acts, Paul and his traveling buddy Silas have been arrested and tossed in jail. And what do they do? They're not sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm in jail. And trust me, jails in the first century uh, were nothing like uh, prisons in our day and time. As horrendous as those are, you cannot even imagine how horrific a jail setting was in the day and time of the Apostle Paul and his traveling buddy Silas. But what do they do in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40? They are singing. What? The what? They're singing. How can they do that? They can do that because they have made a decision to choose joy and blessedness in the time of difficulty. So we've got to find, in the days that are coming ahead, we've got to find ways to, to, uh, to remind ourselves on a regular basis. And here's just a one little trite thing that I'm going to offer up to you today. You know, they're saying to us, wash your hands, which mom said years ago, and we should have believed her when she said it. But nonetheless, we're supposed to wash our hands more regularly, particularly as we interact with people, you know, when we encounter them or whatever. We touch a surface that might or might not have the virus on it. Well, they said, sing happy birthday twice. I did that for a while. But uh, singing happy birthday twice didn't help me all that much. My suggestion to you is, Find one of your favorite hymns or Christian songs and sing 20 seconds worth of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's about 20 seconds. And if you sing Amazing Grace when you're washing your hands 43 times a day, what's going to sink into our brains? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So. And also, I want to remind us from this passage that James talks about in verse 12 here, the crown of life. And this is a realization, a recognition that this is not our permanent residence. When I was in the military, there were two kinds of travel. Well, really three. There was a deployment, which was usually a longer term somewhere else that you didn't really live. There was a temporary duty thing. We called it TDY because, you know, in the military, you abbreviate everything and come up with an acronym for everything. TDY, temporary, usually 180 days or less. And then they had this weird thing called a permanent change of station. 
The interesting thing to me about a permanent change of station was it was never permanent. Two years later or three years later or 18 months later, they're going to move you somewhere else on another permanent change of station. We've got to quit acting like this place is our permanent change of station. Uh, last year, uh, we went to Colorado to see uh, my, uh, our son and daughter-in-law and our grandkids that are there. And uh, we took them up to Cheyenne, Wyoming. That was my first permanent duty station, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so just over the border on Interstate 25 in Cheyenne, and out, just outside of Cheyenne, there's a rest stop. Now, this rest stop is amazing. It's like a little historical museum. There's a little uh, gift shop and cafe there. There's this little place where you can take pictures as if you were arrested in an old west jail. It is a fabulous rest stop. But you know one thing I noticed while we were there? Nobody was living there. Nobody made their permanent home. Why? Because it was a rest stop. It wasn't a permanent address. And I don't care how long you've been planted in Emporia, Kansas, or wherever else you live around, wherever you are, I don't care how long you've been planted there and what you call home, and that's fine, but this is not our ultimate destination. We all have days when we feel like things are overwhelming us, and these are days when that can easily happen. But you and I, if we're believers in Jesus, we should be responding differently. We should choose joy in the middle of difficulty. We should find ways to remind ourselves that this is not our permanent residence and that what awaits us is the crown of life. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the reality from this book of James this morning, the reminder that we have a decision to make about how we face the days ahead, and that as we lean into you, we are empowered to make a decision to choose joy because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Lord, words easy to say, even easy to read, harder to internalize, but by your power, by your strength, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we say, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.